turn in our Bibles to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 7. Um, because God's word is holy and infallible, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is our only authority by which we may be able to know who God is and how he deals with us and how we may be saved. Let's give honor to the word of the Lord and to God himself as we stand to read the word, if you're able. Micah 7, starting at verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. It will be a day when they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain, and the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our glorious Lord, we pray that you would bless this, your word, that we would plead before you, both for your justice and mercy, and that we would see your salvation and even your righteousness. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Maybe not everybody here is that much of a fan of lawyers. However, it's a good thing to study the proceedings of court cases because sometimes the scripture uses that kind of language to plead someone's case, for instance, we find in today's text. Um, when someone is pleading a case for someone, you're having an advocate who represents someone who's being defended, and they have to have a case that's pleaded in court. And if you, if you had to go before court and go before a judge and you have no one to plead your case, you could be in a bad, bad way. But if you have a faithful advocate who knows your case and can plead your case, you are for the better. We'll look a little bit more at how Micah goes and pleads uh, before the Lord and asks for the Lord himself to plead his case. But before we look at that, let's get a little bit of overview of what this um, prophecy is about. Micah gives a prophecy not against one group, but both the northern and the southern kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel and also the kingdom of Judah, that both are going to be judged by God because of wickedness and sin, sin such as idolatry, sin such as evil among the leadership, bribery among the leadership, but also those who would take and uh, those of the religious order who would prophesy for money. Uh, there were those who were stealing and coveting other people's lands and taking other land. There was all sorts of evil. But the worst of all was the uh, raising up of idols because God is a jealous God. He's not going to have 
his people worshiping um, things that are made with men's hands, pagan idols. And God promised that he would destroy their idols and he was going to use uh, foreign powers to come in. And he even tells them that one of those foreign powers would be Babylon. It's foretold that Babylon would come and judge them. As we look at today's uh, text, we'll look at it under uh, two main points. That we have a plea, or you should have a plea before God. But also we'll look at shame for God's enemies. So first, main point is your plea before God. And secondly, shame for God's enemies. Let's look at that first main point, your plea before God. So, before Micah gives this mention of a plea before God, and he asks God to execute uh, his case for him and execute justice for him, the first thing to note here in our text is that Micah confesses sin before the Lord, before God. Look at verse 9. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Now, there is an interpretation here that it could be that he's speaking on behalf of Jerusalem or maybe the people of God. But I don't think the text necessarily says that. So I, I, I think the plain way to interpret this is that Micah himself is saying, I will bear the shame and indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I think this is something that is a model for every person to confess sin before the Lord. But before we go on and and look a little bit more at this, it's important to notice that there is not one prophet of old who was sinless. They were devout men. They were holy men of God, yet they were not sinless. Um, Micah didn't have any sin. That's why he confessed his sin before the Lord. Uh, Another example of a prophet who confessed his sin before the Lord in in a particular way was Isaiah. In uh, Isaiah 6, 5, you don't have to turn there, but it's a very brief verse. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Or some some translations say, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, according to some theologians, had a problem with a loose tongue and with a profane tongue, and he confessed that sin before the Lord. Now, what about Moses? God tells us that Moses was one of the most humble men who had ever lived. And uh, Numbers 12, he also says that Moses was someone, he didn't speak to him in visions, he didn't speak to him in, in dreams, he spoke to him face to face, mouth to mouth, because Moses was faithful in all of God's household. Yet even Moses had anger before the Lord when he was aggravated by the the continuous um, complaints and and ungrateful ways of the people of Israel. He got angry, and when God told him that second time to speak to the rock so, so that it would bring forth water, instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock out of anger not anger toward God, but anger toward these people. Well, God wasn't pleased, and because of that, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. It's not just the prophets of old who were um, had to confess sin, but what about the apostles? 
the apostles were holy and devout men, yet they themselves were, were sinful and had to confess sin before God. You remember Peter had to be rebuked for hypocrisy and, and fearing um, what was called the party of the circumcision. That's the Jews. He feared the Jews, Christian Jews, when he was trying to fellowship with a group that had both Jews and Gentiles. He didn't want to sit with the Gentiles because he feared. And he was rebuked by Paul. Um, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says this about himself. He says it's something glorious about Jesus first. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a beautiful doctrine. But of whom I am chief. I am the foremost of all sinners, Paul confessed. So if Micah confesses sin before the Lord, I think it's the calling of each and every one of us as well to confess our sin before the Lord. Now, when we read verse 9 again, look at verse 9 again. I will bear the indignation. You could translate that. I will bear the fury of the Lord because I have sinned against him. I don't think that God was judging both the northern and southern kingdoms because of the sins of Micah. He was judging the northern and southern kingdoms because of the wickedness and idolatry of, of others. However... Micah was going to be part of those who suffered under the siege, under the fury of God inflicted by the foreign powers who were going to surround the cities and burn much of it with fire, and he was going to suffer that um, for himself. Now, I tried to do some research to actually look and see how Micah died, and uh, I didn't find anything um, in Scripture or elsewhere, but I saw something that there was a very old, very old piece of artwork that had been produced. Maybe it was the Eastern Orthodox Church and some tradition of um, that Micah had been pushed off a cliff by uh, one of the kings of Judah. You can imagine a lot, maybe a king being really angry with the kind of prophecy that Micah was given. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't peculiar for some of these prophets to die a, a death by... Um, these kings at the time. Um, so when Micah says this, I will bear the indignation or the fury of the Lord, he's not saying that he's going to bear the indignation or fury of God in hell. Because the rest of the verse would disagree with that. Look at the rest of the verse, verse 9. Micah goes on to say that he will suffer until God himself pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. Yes, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer along with the people of God because of their sins and because I have sinned as well. But God is going to plead my case and I will see his righteousness. I think this is a part of the verse that we need to own for ourselves. Don't you think you can say unto God, plead my case, plead my case, O God. In light especially of what Jesus Christ has done, you can say, plead my case, O God, and execute justice for me. 
We shouldn't be afraid of God's justice because we know that God's justice, God's just punishment for sin was inflicted upon Jesus Christ for those who have faith in him. That is how God has remained both just and the juster fire of those who have faith in Jesus. We can say as well that we can ask God himself to plead our case. Oh God, plead our case. Now where do we find in scripture that God pleads our case like an advocate in court? In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is given this title, Advocate. In 1 John 2, John, um, that, that book or that, uh, that letter, epistle, opens saying this, We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. That's 1 John 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous, And he himself will become a propitiation for us. Propitiation is a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Jesus, who died on the cross for us, also pleads our case as the advocate of God for us. Let's look also at this shame that is coming for God's enemies. Look at verse 10. Then my enemy will see... And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look on her. At that time, she will be trampled down like mire of the streets. A better translation of verse 10 would be this. At that time, she will become a trampled down place like mire of the streets. That's a literal translation. So the she mentioned here is not an actual woman, but a place. Now, okay, if she is a place, and a place that's going to get trampled down, what is a place of people that might mock God or God's people and maybe a city representing that kingdom? Um, I believe a a psalm that gives us a little bit of... um, preview into this is Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, it opens by saying, why would the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. So it's nations. The nations around them are the ones who would go out and say, where now is your God? Now, when Nebuchadnezzar and his forces besieged the city and took all of the people captive. Don't you think some of their enemies would ask and question them? Where is your God now? Hasn't your God abandoned you? That he left you to be taken captive and to have your city sieged and your temple destroyed and all the goods of your, of your temple and the gold of your temple and the precious things of your kingdom taken away along with your sons and daughters Where is your God now? Now, being that that is the case, Psalm 115 mentions that kind of thing, that the nations are the ones who say that sort of thing. I believe that Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 13, is something we need to look at that gives another piece of evidence that maybe the city in question here is that of Babylon. 
Isaiah 13, starting at verse 17. This is what God says he's going to do. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them. Who will not value silver, nor take pleasure in gold? And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will they eye pity, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will also live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. Hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time also will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. So when we read about a a city being trampled down like mire in the streets, that's like yucky mud, perhaps that city was Babylon. But look again at the shame for God's enemies. Verse 9, he says, After God pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness Then my enemies will see and shame will cover her. I think this is something that applies today. Those who mock us, those who laugh at us, those who tell us, where is your God? Or or who, who come and tell us, well, God doesn't exist. You're just living a pipe dream. Or whatever kind of other ridicule these people like to say. Um, I've heard of uh, a particular scientist uh, in Europe who who goes on the news and says that he doesn't even think Christians should be allowed to raise their own children because what what they're teaching them and teaching them the Bible is, is like child abuse. What a wicked thing to say. Those sort of people, they mock and they ridicule and they try to take away the rights of those who believe in the, in the Holy Scripture, one day they will see the righteous exalted, yet they will be judged. And when they are judged, they will be shamed. They will see the deliverance of the righteous, and they will be shamed. And then they will regret for all eternity their wrong decision and their evil wickedness that they've done both unto God himself and to to God's people. But today's text also gives us hope of something that really, I I would say, of something that's partially already fulfilled and is continuing to be fulfilled. But verses 11 through 12 give us a prophecy of the blessing of God's covenant people through the Holy Gospel. Look at verses 11 through 12. It will be, that's that day when God executes justice through Jesus. It will be a day for building your walls. On that day will your boundary be extended. 
It will be a day when they come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt even to the Euphrates, even from sea to sea and mountain to mountain. Now, it's speaking about God's holy city, perhaps. But whenever we, even when we sing about Zion, the city of our God, that's an illustration for the church, isn't it? Her boundary, not will, but her boundary already has been extended beyond that of the, of the promised land. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 tells us about the extending of the boundaries of God's kingdom in a fabulous, very <laughs> rapid fashion. Starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, um, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. The Spirit was given them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, there's Egypt, and the district of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. This is a reversal of the curse at the Tower of Babel, wherein the gospel, or you could say the gospel's kingdom, is being enlarged beyond the walls of, of Zion, the the city of God, to all of the surrounding nations. But that's not all. What has happened since the time of the apostles? You remember when Jesus concludes at the end, uh, well, the writer of, of uh, the gospel of Matthew, when Matthew concludes his gospel account, account, he concludes with the words of Jesus giving the Great Commission. When Jesus says, All authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Who? Not just, not just the, the region of the Middle East. All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That great commission is God's telling us, 
Christ's telling us that his kingdom will continue to prevail and reign until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, wherein people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout the entire world will come and receive the Holy Gospel. And a lot of it has spread through much of the whole world. Getting back to Micah. In Micah 7, verse 13. This speaks, verse here, verse here in Micah seven thirteen. it speaks about what will happen to all those who deny the authority of King Jesus and the offer of his salvation. The earth, the earth will become desolate because of her inhabitants on account of the fruit of their deeds. Now, where in the New Testament do we read about the earth becoming desolate and all her inhabitants of the earth having to bear desolation from the Lord? 2 Peter 3, 7. 2 Peter 3, 7. Peter says this, The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So this present earth and present heavens are being reserved for a time where God is going to inflict fire upon the earth. And all the inhabitants of the earth will become desolate. But the good news is that those who are still on the earth will meet the Lord in the air and they won't have to be on the earth bearing the burning intense heat as the earth is cleansed. But then God will recreate a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and even Jesus Christ becomes the very center, the centerpiece and even the light of that new heavens and new earth. So again, in today's text, it is a wonderful thing to have a plea and it's a wonderful thing to have an advocate to plea your case. But praise be to God that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's both our Savior, the one who's died for us, and also the one who will plead our case before the Father on that great day. But again, God promises both shame and destruction for those who refuse this holy gospel of Jesus our Lord. May it be that you do not reject and suffer for our eternity by rejecting the good news of the holy gospel. Pray for your friends, pray for your family, pray for your neighbors that God would open their eyes that they too might receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and Advocate so that they would not suffer the desolation that is to come. Let's pray together. We thank you, our glorious God, for this your word. We thank you that you are a just and holy God and that there is a day coming where you will execute justice upon the earth. And we thank you that you have already brought forth justice through Jesus our Lord, that you have made him both just and the justifier. And uh, we thank you that even Jesus our Lord has given us and purchased for us an eternal salvation through his blood. We thank you, our glorious Father, that you are holy and just, but also loving and merciful to sinners such as us. 
We pray for our unsaved loved ones that you too would bring them unto yourself. Lord, have mercy upon those whom we love, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our, our relatives, and those whom even we work with. We pray that you would open their eyes, that they would see and believe and receive Jesus Christ as Savior, as their Lord, and as their Advocate, that he himself would plead their case on that great day of judgment. Have mercy upon us and help us, we pray, to rejoice in you and in your wonderful works and your mighty grace. For we thank, we thank you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, let's turn to 528 and we'll stand and sing 528, Rejoice ye pure in heart. <laughs>